Hey friends, Matt here. So if you've been following our schedule, you might be a little confused right now. Artemis Fowl? I thought they were going to review Hot Fuzz. Well, in light of everything going on right now, Ben and I decided now might not be the best time to do a lovingly jokey review of a violent cop comedy film. No shade on Hot Fuzz. It's incredible. It always will be. This is just not the right time. We know you guys understand. So instead, this week's film is Artemis Fowl, from the director of the Tilty Thor movie, Kenneth Branagh. Here's a review we slapped together the last minute of a movie that's been slapped together for almost 20 years. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bottom of the bin. Ben, I just want to say I'm sorry. <laughs> this was my idea, but wow, that was awful. <laughs> it was here's here's the thing though, is that it's more boring than awful. Like Oh no no People are talking about it like it's the worst movie ever made, and it's just a boring book to movie adaptation. Okay, well, I think there's N- not just that it's not just that um so i read the book okay in the span of like four days probably the fastest i've ever read a book ever just to shit on a movie <laughs> <laughs> that was all the only reason um no prior interest in armis i didn't read it as a kid um no, it was just one of those things it was like harry potter i didn't read harry potter as a kid i only read it when I had, I decided to take a course in Harry Potter, um, <laughs> where you read like one book a week. I was almost as insane as my teacher for choosing that course. Um, but anyway, I th- yes, it is a bad book to movie adaptation. However, there's a lot of stuff th- about this movie that just doesn't work as a movie. I really want to dig into that because I find it. Um, like this movie is, here's my thoughts on, on Artemis Fowl movie adaptation. It is revolutionary because it comes up with new ways for movies to fuck up. (laughs) Um, and it's not, it has nothing to do with the fact that it is a poor adaptation. Like this is a mistake that any movie could make. And it's very, very lazy filmmaking. But first what, like so is that your general thoughts just a boring I so I I went into this movie giving it the benefit of the doubt thinking like any child slash youth preteen fantasy novel that gets adapted into a movie series is going to be like automatically compared to Harry Potter yes and that's what they people are saying like it people were saying that that's what this was trying to be Right, so I said, well, let's not judge this as trying to be the next Harry Potter. Let's just watch it and judge it on its own merits as a movie. Like, I never read the book, so I just said, I just kind of went into this. I just watched it this morning, actually, being like, does this just as a movie work? And (laughs) it was just, even going into it, giving it that benefit of the doubt, it was still very disappointing. There's a lot of really weird choices with this movie. Uh, some more obvious than others. Um, 
Josh Gad as the <laughs> narration. Um, so so to set up this this idea, Josh Gad is um, uh, used as a framing device for the film. There we meet him at the beginning. He's in uh, prison interrogation, and they're asking him about Artemis Fowl, um, uh, and he tells the whole film as if he was there the whole time. Yes. Yeah, one of the lines he has narrating is he says, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the wonderful, thriving metropolis that is Haven City, home of the fairies. But he's just talking to this one guy who's interrogating him. It's like he's trying to pitch him the screenplay for the movie. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, while we're talking about Josh Gad, like, I love Josh Gad. Fine actor. He is a fine actor, and he's hilarious. He just seems like the most likable person in interviews and stuff like that. Um, but I have such... And, I, and he, I feel bad for him because he can do dramatic acting, and a lot of his movies lately has been him just, like, trying to prove, like, look, I can be a serious actor, too, or I can be, like, gritty and, <laughs> um, like, Murder on the Orient Express, and then this where he's doing the gravelly voice. But it's... I still have a hard time not seeing Olaf whenever Josh Gad is in a movie. <laughs> Even in the narrations. He's got a bit of that um, Nathan Lane syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know how Nathan Lane's a respectable actor. He's done all Broadway shows and everything. But whenever you hear his voice, all you hear is Timon. All you hear is Timon from Lion King. There's an interview with Josh Gad on Jimmy Fallon where he's talking, or maybe, I don't know if it was Jimmy Fallon, but he's talking about like how he's reading his kids' bedtime stories and they're like, no, read it as dad. Don't read it in your Olaf voice. And he's like, there is no Olaf voice. This is just my voice. And he, but he can't escape that he's Olaf from Frozen. Right. And that's just something he's going to have to live with as an actor is that that was like, it, it was such a staple of his career. Mm-hmm. He's always come off to me as like, like Jack Black's little brother. A little bit, you know. Yeah, like he he hit he's that same shtick, but it's it's just a little little younger. Um, and I wonder if it's because this is a Disney production that they said no, no, you can't have the Olaf voice. You can't do you can't do that voice. <laughs> That's my voice. Um, but it's just it, it's one thing for him to use that voice in the film it's another for him to be the narration (laughs) yeah because it's straight up laughable it's like this is the story of artemis fowl it's like it's like olaf like you remember that scene in frozen 2 where olaf like recounts the whole story of the first frozen film and he does yes all the different characters and stuff it's like we're listening to that yes that's what that whole (laughs) that's what his voice feels like and it's not even consistent like he'll still sometimes dip back into his regular voice when he's screaming or shouting. Um, same with Judy Dench, which is yes. another odd choice. This is her second um, gender bent role because I know it's so in Cats she played um, Old Deuteronomy, which was originally a male role, and then in this one she plays Root, which, from my understanding, reading the book, is also male. Huh? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she's trying for something progressive all all the power to that i just wish she'd made better choices in movies for that <laughs> the thing is is though is that she's dame judy dench like no matter she can do as many bad movies as she wants for the rest of her life and we're still gonna remember her as dame judy dench we're gonna remember her as old deuteronomy giving us the scissor legs 
You haven't seen Cats, have you? I did. I saw it. Oh yeah, that's right. You did. You did watch yeah. it. Oh my god. Eventually, yeah. I stomached it. Eventually, it was a very yeah. weird experience. And this movie isn't bad in the way that Cats is bad. No, no. This this isn't. I mean, there's there's still some of that nightmare fuel. Um, <laughs> Judy Dench carried some of that uh, <laughs> some of that from Cats into. Um, so Josh Gad plays a dwarf giant, and dwarf giants have this ability to uh, dig through dirt by elongating their mouths and just chomping through the dirt, and then it comes out the back end. Like, he <laughs> shits out rocks and minerals. <laughs> and just to be clear, this is all in the book. <laughs> It doesn't okay. go. Uh, this this movie doesn't go the full extent. There's a scene where um, he like full on blasts big mounds of dirt out his ass <laughs> at Butler, um, the the guard character. Yeah, they decided to tone that down, but they went full out with the whole like I don't know. I don't even know if the book really describes it much as far as the whole chomping through dirt. But they have like this whole thing of him like pulling his jaw down to where it it stretches like down to his chest and it's like i knew watching this movie like they're gonna do something with this and it's gonna look terrifying and it does and it's so weird that they decide to end the movie with him doing that trick again (laughs) because it's (laughs) such a it is nightmare fuel and i just yeah, this is, and this goes with the whole territory of adapting things to film is how do you do certain things? But I think they really miscalculated what they needed to adapt because that did not need to be seen. Yeah, and books to movie adaptations are like a really difficult thing to do. Like, I'll give it that because yeah. in a book, you have, like, it's a lot easier to go inside of a character's head. Um, like in written form to just be like this is what this person was thinking even if it's not from that character's perspective whereas in movies you can't always just like so like a character's decision making you can really like understand why they're making decisions more in a novel Um, and then just Mm -hmm. books are generally longer than like what you can condense into a film reading the book it was maybe like six hours total i know the audiobook is around like six hours long um, the movie is about 95 minutes. So, yeah, a lot of condensing, a lot of things taken out, and a lot of things put in, actually, which, which was kind of weird. Because this is the first in a series, and from what I read on the production, they wanted to adapt the first and the second novel. I don't know anything about the second novel, but I do know this. So, in this film, there's this thing called the Oculus or okay. is it the Oculus? What is it? The Oculus Rift? They wanted to get a VR simulator? No. It's called the Aculus. Oh, yeah. I watched this this morning, and it's already left my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and probably good reasons, because they pulled one of the most generic tricks uh, in the book, uh, which is the MacGuffin. It's the big important thing that if we don't get it, it's going to... Uh, the bad guys will get it, and they'll take over the world with it, you know, it's the philosopher's stone. It's the 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 Death Star plans. The um the Codex for our Man of Steel fans. Hope that's not the crowd we draw in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I looked it up. 
because as soon as that popped up, I'm like, that's not in the book. And lo and behold, it's not in the series. They made it up completely for this movie. I guess to make it feel like a bigger movie, um, it's, it's just such a weird thing. And right off the bat, there's like so much exposition that they're just throwing at you. Holy shit. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I started trying to keep up being like, okay, so these, this group of people, okay, someone, so there's some other group that has Olaf captured um don't know who they are yet but okay they're telling me this and this and then eventually i was like i just don't care to keep up with whose side everyone is on and it's just like you know what's funny ben this movie has more exposition than the book (laughs) (laughs) this see the thing is with the book the book is um the book is is very strange in that uh, it has this whole big fantasy world and so for anyone who's just completely lost on what Artemis Fowl is, Artemis Fowl is the story of a 12-year-old boy who's like a child prodigy of this criminal mastermind, Artemis Fowl Sr. And their whole thing is stealing valuable artifacts. And they have been researching the myths of fairies. Also, this takes place in, in Ireland. So, leprechauns. There's actually... There is a... Um, <laughs> This is funny because it's in the book too. Is is the uh, the there's a this whole um, agency uh, called LEP, and it's <laughs> called LEP Recon. <laughs> like that's what it it's it just that's what it's from the it's from the book. Okay, there's some silly things in this movie that are just from the book, and I have no problem with that. <laughs> What's what I do find it find silly is that they all look like mini green goblins. <laughs> Like like from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, Green Goblin. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the basic plot of this is this 12-year-old boy wants to steal a bunch of gold from these leprechauns <laughs> uh, to restore his family's name and, uh, and fund like future illegal activities. Okay. This movie decides, though, that it's now about getting this all-important device... otherwise it'll get into the wrong hands oh also your father is kidnapped the father doesn't um he's missing in the first in the first book maybe he appears in the second but artemis's father artemis's father so colin farrell oh um, our our resident irish actor that we (laughs) that disney must have on loan i guess (laughs) yeah and he yeah. plays a lot of Disney dads in their live action movies. Yeah, yeah. He was in that Mary Poppins. Saving Mr. Banks, pick. yeah. Yeah, and he was uh, the the dad in Dumbo, and he's the dad in this. He's he's your he's your Irish dad. He's kind of not not too like I shouldn't say not as well because he is a great actor, but he's kind of filling Robin Williams's shoes. How so? Robin Williams was the go to dad actor. Well, I don't know though. Robin Williams would always like absorb the screen, right? I think Colin yeah. Farrell in in a lot of these movies, he just he's just on the side. He's there as like, um, I don't know, the emotional like the the heart of the film, or like yeah. like something that that our heroes are supposed to. Actually, in all three of these movies, like same as Banks, Dumbo, and this, there's a there is a younger character that 
wants to make their dad proud or like has a has a weird relationship with their father and it's always Colin Farrell everyone wants to make Colin Farrell proud yes including us by (laughs) I'll say this Colin um it's not your fault (laughs) this movie's terrible I think you 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 know what that scene of him getting on the uh helicopter at the very end I wonder if that was just something they shot like behind the scenes, just of him like, okay, I'm done <laughs> shooting, going home. <laughs> I want to talk about editing. Okay. Um, so you know what ADR is, right? Yes. Yeah. ADR. I have to look up the, what it actually stands for. I know what it means. But Audio dialogue replacement. It? I've had to do ADR, actually. Right. So you, you have a good relationship with it. Yeah, so ADR is um, when it's basically voice acting to yourself. It's when, like, if they don't get the audio right on set, because it is really hard to get, like, professional-sounding audio on a movie set when you have all these things going on. So a lot of times they'll get to editing and they'll be like, oh, there's some distorted noise coming in here. Oh, the boom guy had dropped the microphone or wasn't plugged in. And they'll have to, like, come in and dub their own audio over themselves. And it's like... It's actually a hard thing to do because you have to sync it up with your own mouth movements, but you're also trying to, like, give a performance and be, like, technical in sync. A good example of that would be um, the uh, Luke Vader confrontation in Empire Strikes Back. So Mark Hamill has those lines, No, that's not true! That's impossible! And he screams. There's a wind machine on set blowing in his face. So... You can't get those lines on set, so Mark Hamill has to go in and record those separately, watching his mouth movements. Yeah. It's debatable whether or not that was training for him when he would eventually become the Joker. Um, <laughs> his his little little introduction to, to voice acting, so to speak. I don't know. That's my theory. Um, but that's a case of ADR done where it was inevitable it wasn't because they fucked up on set it's because well if we want to want his lines to be audible we gotta do that another example is like any dance scene in a movie there is no music playing on set right they have to edit around that that's just come to the territory with this it was very interesting watching this because i noticed so many scenes of characters backs to the camera like we could not see any lip movement Mm-hmm. And yet we hear all this dialogue and then it cuts back to them. And then whatever they were saying, like what we could see with their lips, it was just the most generic stuff. I, I it, like most generic dialogue. And it reminded me of this thing. So I was watching the, uh, the red letter media review for the mummy. And they talked about how um, the mummy, there were, there was a lot of concern for how it was going to be marketable to outside of the United States. The foreign market. Right. And when it comes to movies being marketable in the foreign market, they have to do a lot of translation. And they have to make sure that the film will resonate with another audience. So my guess is, and I, w- I was looking up the production history of this movie, and I, don't, I didn't see anything conspiratorial, but I want to say that they filmed most of their scenes before they had a finished script that wouldn't be surprising at all yeah and like and it that would be 
I would understand that for like one or two scenes, you know, where they couldn't figure it out or they figure it out in post. It's like, oh, maybe we switch around the dialogue. Oh, we'll use this coverage we have here uh, where we just shot from the back of his face so that we can put in other dialogue. But that's like 95% of the movie mm-hmm. is like that. And a good example I have is, is um, so it's the scene where um, Mulch, Josh Gad's character, is in a prison and he has a Walkman on him. That, I don't know if that was in the book. That feels like they're trying to tap into a Guardians of the Galaxy thing. Um, but he's listening to a song by Foreigner because he has that line that says, 1984, Foreigner. That dialogue, it's a wide shot. You can't make out his lip movement. Then it cuts to him saying, it's a real classic. So here's my theory. They didn't have the song rights until after they shot that scene. So they edited it around when they figured out, okay, we have a song by Foreigner, so we'll have him say this ADR line now and just put the two takes together. And that's like, again, 95% of the movie. It was just so baffling because I'm like, how many times do they think they can get away with this? And they... (laughs) I don't know. It's just, it's so bizarre. Did you notice any of that? Yeah, I did a little bit. And Disney Plus seems to be having some trouble with their originals. Like, they've got The Mandalorian, which is great. But pretty much all the other This wasn't an original, though. Wasn't it? No, this was going to be put in theaters. And then it was delayed. Like, there was a, they posted a trailer for this back in, like, 2018. Like, around, like, let me, let me look this up. Uh, teaser artist in 18 so then this has been this has been delayed like a whole year this movie has been in production hell for like 20 years so eventually they're like we just got to get it out yeah let let me just confirm that though um because so the the book i believe the book i have the book right here the book came out in 2001 okay this print I have here is 2009. It's under Disney's uh, publication company. The movie, in 2001, plans were announced for a film adaptation of the series. In 2003, uh, Eon Colfer, who's the, the author of the book, stated that a screenplay had been finalized and the casting was due to start the same year, but expressed uh, skepticism over whether or not this would come to pass. So hmm. fast forward until 2013... <laughs> where Disney con- announces that Artemis Fowl would be uh, adapted to a film. So, yeah, this movie, it's it's been in development hell for almost 20 years. Of course it has. <laughs> and that's, like, 20 years is, like, crazy. Because then if, like, they did cast it in 2001, well, we cast this 12-year-old <laughs> in 2001. Now he's 22. <laughs> now it's boyhood. <laughs> no, wait, now he's 32. It was 20 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah it, it it's such a like it this feels like when you have an assignment that's due in a month and you think yeah. oh, okay i don't have to do it now it's like me whenever i have to edit a podcast i <laughs> <laughs> uh, you think oh i have all this time and and then the day it's due you're like oh shit i haven't done anything and so <laughs> that's what this movie feels like it's down with the editing is just the laziest way to just, uh, what do we got? 
we have all all this all these scenes that don't mash together. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's get Josh Gad to do a narration to link it all together. Yeah, uh, I want to talk a bit about Artemis. Okay, uh, Artemis Fowl. Uh, so Artemis is the uh, titular character of the film. He is a twelve-year-old boy. The movie Artemis is very different from book Artemis. Okay. In the book, Artemis Fowl Jr. is like a young Sherlock Holmes. Um, he's very cold, manipulative. You could almost read the book as if he was the villain or, or an anti-hero because he he carries himself in that way where like he's always one step ahead of everybody else. I got that um, impression of him kind of through the movie. Yeah, the thing is that this movie frames him... Uh, in a way where we're supposed to empathize with him first, where we see him, his daddy issues with Colin Farrell, and we see him being introduced to this life as a a criminal mastermind, which is also done really quickly, where, like, Butler, uh, who's the big, big tall guy, uh, when his dad goes missing, he's like, I'm not supposed to show you any of this. And then he shows him all of it. <laughs> shows him, mm-hmm. like, his dad's back cave. And it was funny because you see Artemis looking, like, trying to find the journal from his dad. And he's going through all these big bookshelves. And, like, the first thing he pulls out that has the book in it. And then he pulls out this lamp, like, this this thing that slides out of the bookcase uh, and and turns it over as if he knows exactly how everything works in this <laughs> secret place that he's never been before. It's just, uh, uh, it's so poorly thought out. Yeah, but you got a sense that he was an anti-hero? Or that he was, like, too smart for his own good and, like, like, they talk about why are you smirking? You look like you're just... Is this a game for you? And he's kind of enjoying it in a way that he probably shouldn't be. Right. They have that whole thing where he's talking to his uh, principal at the school, and the principal gives us the rundown of his character. It's like, you've missed you know, five classes. You're, that you're was a his rebel. Counts, that was his therapist. His therapist. Okay. All right. Same difference. <laughs> therapist, principal, they'll put out the same information. In a movie, Yeah. <laughs> We need a scene where the character tells us everything about this character. It's, it's bullshit. The thing is that in the book, there's actually very little Artemis Fowl in the book. And I think that's to a point because he is very guarded and reserved. Yeah, he really does play himself off like a Bond villain almost, hmm. which is just interesting because he's a 12-year-old boy. And I think with this movie, it's trying to ride that line between making you empathize with the main character of this movie, but also him being that criminal mastermind. And when he has that line at the very end where he says, I'm Artemis Fowl, I'm a criminal mastermind. It's like, I did not believe it. Yeah, I felt that too. I'm like, no, you're not a criminal no, mastermind. No. You're a smart kid. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's really all it was. And because they showed Artemis learning about his father and all that, it takes away the mystique from the character. It's like, uh, what's a really dumb idea? Um, introducing Darth Vader as a boy, as a yeah. little boy, and then showing us his life uh, before he's Darth Vader. We don't want to know this stuff. There's that Patton Oswalt routine where he talks about, like, if he met George Lucas and, like, 
Oh yeah, it's it, you're gonna meet uh, Darth Vader, but he's a little kid, <laughs> and he and he really is upset about losing his mommy, and then there's and then you're gonna meet Boba Fett, and he's gonna be a little kid, and he's gonna be <laughs> upset because his dad died. <laughs> we don't need to know this stuff. Yeah, I can see that, but I'll, but like there's so how what is this movie like? Is it the first book? Is it part of the first book? It's it's hard to say because the the Aculus is complete is a complete fabrication, so okay. they made it up as the MacGuffin. Um, I have no idea what the second book is like. Um, the first book it's so it's centered mainly around what happens at the mansion where Holly Short, who's the uh, the elf, she is uh, taken hostage, and it's all the uh, the elf trying to break her out and they're doing all these negotiations with with artemis like you're gonna give me all this gold and then i'll give her back to you but there's a little more like technical stuff in the book uh for one so you know how they have that whole time stop thing that freezes time yeah so in the book uh, they use that, I guess, to trap everybody in in the mansion. Uh, but they also have this thing called a bio bomb, and how a bio bomb works, it's it's like a nuclear bomb, but it only destroys living creatures. And I guess you could call it like the like a Thanos snap kind of thing. And they're going to use that to kill Artemis Fowl and all and his everybody in the house. And he does a few tricks to escape and it really is quite clever how it turns out in the book none of that is in the movie (laughs) and yeah there's just a lot of like fairly smart things that were in the i don't want to say like the book is a masterpiece i'm not saying like they 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 soiled the bible it's not like that it's it's more like you had all this stuff already in the book why did you just rush right past it Mm -hmm. you know and like another thing, so you know how Holly has that thing where she can. You wrote in your notes, right, about the uh, the sunglasses. Yeah, the mind control. Yes, so that is a thing that she uses on uh, Juliet. Uh, that's uh, Butler's niece, and in the book, Juliet is is uh, this pretty ditzy, carefree character. You see that a bit in this in this movie, but it's almost like you know, it, like when we were talking about Mission Impossible Two, how a lot of scenes just felt. Like, they were just chopped out. Yeah. I feel like she had a scene or two that was just chopped completely out of the movie. There's a, a part in the book where, where Holly uses the trick, it's called a mesmer, to free herself and then make Juliet just sit and watch a, a, a wall thinking she's watching WrestleMania. It's so bizarre. There are a lot of very bizarre things in the book. It felt like, okay, here's my summary of the book, uh, Artemis Fowl. It's like watching The Last Jedi, where you have all these expectations of how a fantasy book should go, uh, and the book decides, we're not going to do any of those things. Oh, this you want a fantasy story where we explore a, a fantastical world? Well, we're going to stay in a mansion for the whole time. Oh, you want a young protagonist, uh, a young hero protagonist? Well, this guy is an asshole. He's a villain. Yeah, and it, it's it just feels strange, but almost in a right way. I can't say it, I I fully appreciate it yet. It's just very baffling. <laughs> yeah, that's 
that sounds interesting but with the book that it's like i almost that what you said almost gives me more appreciation for the book like i haven't read that it's like that artemis is like a lot more of a just like a jerk and almost like a villain or anti-hero and that like um they spend most of the time in the mansion because i found that like i was always much more interested in anything in the like real world than like the fantasy world in the movie just because the fantasy world is where it's like Mm -hmm. oh cgi eyesores whereas the real world there were some (laughs) like interesting set pieces that they put together yeah i i'll give the i don't want to say like the cg by itself is an eyesore because i want to say that that was where most of the time and effort was put into this movie was putting all those uh all those backgrounds together it's it's more that the movie is edited so poorly that you don't have time to understand what's happening uh, and all the, the fairy tech they have. So this is like a futuristic sci-fi fairy tale. That's what this is. It's like spy kids with fairies. Kind of, yeah. And maybe they needed to just give you more time to just like be impressed with the world and be like, oh, look at all their gadgets. Right. The, the problem is that the book sets so much of the story in the mansion so right so there isn't really like you're talking about how a lot of these books try to be like harry potter the thing with harry potter is that you have an everyman character harry uh wandering into this fairy tale world and like ooh, look at that Ooh, what's that oh my gosh you don't have that in artemis fowl because mm-hmm. artemis fowl is already savvy to all this stuff and even in the book they don't take a lot of time to explain how things work it just happens and you kind of have to take it as it's happening. Hmm. And I kind of appreciate that with the book. Especially like the, the verbiage, the, the diction used in the book. It shows the author respects the intelligence of his, of his young audience. Hmm. I don't know what kind of respect they were trying to give with this movie, but it just feels like an insult to your intelligence. Yeah, and and watching it like when I had just woken up this morning was like, (laughs) I was like, I can't be bothered to keep up with all of the exposition this movie's throwing at me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's... It's weird because... Um, I, I feel like a t- so a ton of the exposition has to do with the rules of the of the fairy world. So like one of the things they have, and it's not really mentioned much in the m- movie, is this rule where a fairy has to be invited into a home. It's kind of like vampires; like you can't step in unless you've been welcomed in. Um, and Artemis uses this to his advantage at the end of the book. Okay, so you remember I said about the bio bomb. Mm-hmm. how that, that destroys all all living creatures in the radius um so he tricks them into thinking that he's still in the mansion and they can use the bio bomb and kill him thing is he's used this sleeping potion and drugged uh himself and butler and juliet so that the bio bomb won't kill them because they can't can't pick up their heartbeat or or some bullshit <laughs> it's bullshit in the book and maybe that's why they took it out but it is also kind of clever if you're willing to suspend your disbelief. And then the fairies, when they come in, a bunch of them start vomiting because they aren't allowed into <laughs> into the house. 
it was such a weird thing reading it and i was just reading just today and i'm just like oh okay and and there wasn't much explanation like i think they mentioned earlier in the book like you're not supposed to go in unless unless you're welcome like artemis has this he at the beginning of the book he finds this like uh text that explains all the rules of fairies so that's what catches him up that's why he's so savvy it's like his little cheat guide to the game and in this you're just kind of along for the ride but in the movie they insist they have to explain everything Mm, yeah and i just got so sick of the explaining explaining like just give me something fun i don't want to do homework when i'm watching a movie (laughs) Mm mm-hmm and all this explaining, I was like, what am I, reading the book? Not at all, because it's not at all like the book. I can't say I hate this movie because I already knew going into it that it would be bad. I just didn't know what, what kind of bad it was. And I think this is this is an interesting bad. It's it's one where you could use this as a, like, if you wanted to explain how editing works, show them this. Yeah. <laughs> show them how it doesn't work. <laughs> Want to explain ADR? Watch Artemis Fowl. Yeah, and it's definitely not like so bad. It's good. Like, there's no, there's no. Uh, other than like the editing. There wasn't any points where I'm like, oh, look at how like cheesy and laughable this is. Like, I would say I, I laughed a lot at at um, Judy Dench and Josh Gad's yeah. uh, voices. They both they both have the same like gruff growly voice and then they have that one scene where they're together and it's like it's like two banes talking to each other this was just like it was just boring like i was yeah so bored watching this movie and that's kind of the worst thing a movie can do is bore you yeah absolutely it was it was more boring than than josh gad as he was digging through the mounds of dirt Um, <laughs> I love Josh Gad though. With all the ADR, they could have got John Ratzenberger to come in and just voice him as the Underminer. <laughs> <laughs> he looks a lot like the Underminer. I I got a lot of Hagrid vibes. Oh yeah, I I feel like it was a mac. A, it, it, yeah, it's a mash between the two. <laughs> yeah, he was a yeah. He's a young. He's a young Hagrid. They'll they'll get Josh Gad when they're gonna do that uh, third Fantastic Beast film that will never come out because J.K. Rowling is a transphobe. <laughs> well, and I don't think any more movies are getting made anytime soon. No, that was an, you know that was another thing I was considering is like is this was this movie cobbled together because they couldn't do reshoots because of the coronavirus? Maybe, but I feel like they would have done reshoots by the time it started if they were doing them. Yeah, the, the teaser for this movie came out uh, November 27th, 2018. It was set to come out August 9th, 2019. So even before coronavirus, it was still delayed. Yeah. Oh, you know what? You know what? It th- I think maybe a part of it is the Weinstein Company was attached to the film. And then they, uh, after they uh, parted ways and... Um, maybe after that there was still more mm. work to do, but well, now it's just T W C. Right? Was it always like that though? No, it used to say the Weinstein Company, and then they changed it to just as T W C. Ah, okay, okay. Now it's a wine stain on their career. <laughs> I think we have finished talking about this very um, unspecial, but holy God. What a 
train wreck of a movie. <laughs> it's one of the movies that have disappointed me by not being bad enough, but also just being bad. <laughs> oh, I wanted to make a joke about how Josh Gad literally chews the scenery. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good night. <laughs> Good night. Wash your hands. And watch your movies. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.